0: This is a relay project. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson.
1: It's Friday and you're locked into Real Talk. We're looking forward to this. This is a Canadian Energy Super episode today. Uh, and we've long been planning on checking in, as you know. We've been, we've been talking about it for several days now with the uh, the combatants, if you will. No, I'm I'm sensationalizing uh, the the dance partners, can we call them the the two participants in the dialogue feature of this month's issue of Alberta Views, uh, the magazine for engaged citizens. This is the April issue, and we're going to be talking to Dr. Heather exner uh from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Institute And Janetta McKenzie from the Pembina Institute, who have argued yes and no, respectively, to the question, is Alberta oil ethical? And I'm looking forward to this debate. It'll be a good one. It forms our Real Talk Roundtable this week. And I have no doubt that it's going to be uh, something of interest to this engaged audience. This is an audience that has reacted strongly this week to an interview that we did with longtime columnist, opinion columnist, Leisha Corbella, who joined me a couple of days ago. We were there to talk politics and she took it into pipelines and she started talking about what some of the biggest issues she thinks will be when it comes down to who's going to win the Alberta election. We're talking about the end of May, May 29th. Albertans are going to head to the polls. Is it going to be about energy? Is it going to be about pipelines or is it going to be about health care or something else? I put that question in front of Leisha and her answers have some of you all kinds of worked up. You're going to hear some responses to that interview in this week's edition of Trash Talk. That's coming up as we wrap up our episode today. And you're also going to hear a little something about it from our lead guest this morning. Max Fawcett will be joining me in just a second. He's the lead columnist with Canada's National Observer. He put out a Twitter thread following my interview with Leisha, which I appreciated. And of course, Max also has a piece we want to take a look at when it comes to housing prices in Canada. Check this out. Max argues we're all to blame for Canada's brutal housing market. So we'll get into that. There's lots to talk about today. This episode of Real Talk is proudly presented by our good friends at We Know Training, and you can check them out online right now at WeKnowTraining.ca. They partner with outstanding brands in regulated industries to provide full suite training solutions and sometimes their partners are such a great fit that they decide to join the Wino Training family. That's why they've acquired and added a bunch of high potential brands to their ecosystem. And they've seen them supercharge their success and achieve massive growth under the Wino Training umbrella. Like Rello, that's real estate learning online for the bold and ambitious, or BCC, that helps financial services and insurance professionals level up their careers. Danatech is your reliable safety partner for training that keeps your team safe and your business compliant. The Canadian Academy of Guard training provides everything learners need to start a rewarding career in the security sector. And Cansell is Ontario's sole provider of retail cannabis training for thousands of bud tenders in that province. You can learn more about these partnerships and how your organization might find its perfect fit at training.ca. All right, let's not waste any time. You told us loud and clear, real talkers. You were fired up by what you heard from Leisha Corbella. We heard from some of our more conservative-leaning guests that loved her voice on the show. We heard from some more centrist, or can I say left-leaning audience members who said, you're never listening again if Leisha Corbella comes back. We can't deny that it got everybody thinking Uh, and that includes our first guest this morning it's max Fawcett, lead columnist from canada's national observer who put out a twitter thread on the interview max we appreciated that when did this first come across your radar and what prompted you to put in a little extra effort from your twitter account
2: well a few people uh put the bat signal out for me on this interview that they wanted me to take a look at it and and provide a reply and I guess part of my—I oh, hate using this word—part of my brand as a journalist is doing these Twitter threads where I sort of explain how things work and, and use facts and fun gifs and everything. So I just decided to do that with Leisha. And look, you, you know, everyone is entitled to their opinion, uh, especially in politics, especially over the next little while. I, I'm not surprised that a card-carrying UCP member like Leisha Corbella doesn't like Rachel Notley, but I think we need to keep the conversation within the bounds of facts and reality. And that was sort of what got my back up is that she said a bunch of things, not about NDP policies or or things like that, but about like actual facts about pipelines in this country, like uh, physical facts, like distances, products in the pipeline that were just flagrantly incorrect, like embarrassingly incorrect, really. And so, you know, I wanted to correct the record on that front. Um, Leisha is welcome to continue to think that the NDP would be a terrible government. Obviously, you know, she has that right, but I think that that opinion should at least be informed by things that are true and not made up.
1: So we want to make sure that this audience has the facts in front of it. I appreciate your approach to this, so, so let's do some fact-checking on this. And this is not me nailing Leisha to the cross either. The whole point of a show like this is to hear people's takes, opinions, and assertions, and then to challenge them and see how they all work out in the wash. Uh, she and I talked a little bit about royalty reviews. She brought it up. She was talking about Rachel Notley uh, participating in one, rolling one out, and she invoked the example of the, of the political price that Ed Stelmeck paid when he mused about and carried out a royalty review as well. Johnny, let's get that clip ready. This was Leisha Corbella just a couple of days ago on this show. Obviously, you can watch the full interview and our YouTube or podcast archive, but, but here's a snippet talking royalty reviews. Are you going
3: to do another royalty review and chase away our oil and gas? One of the things a lot of people, even Albertans, don't realize, oil and gas industry is very mobile. When you say... It will chase away the oil and gas industry. People think, oh, well, they can't move. I mean, you know, they're dug into the ground. Well, no, a well gets depleted and then they have to move the well and dig somewhere else. And they'll just as easily go and dig in the U.S. They don't have to stay in Alberta.
1: That was one that you wanted to point out, Max. I know you wanted to touch on that one. What, what's inaccurate from your perspective?
2: Have the four years that the NDP were in government as sort of a testimony to the fact that these fears are are really not true. You know, I I remember hearing this. uh, I was covering the industry for Alberta oil at the time where I was the editor. And, you know, you'd hear a lot of companies, uh, especially ones that that their founders or their chief executives were from Saskatchewan saying, well, we're just going to move our head office to Saskatoon or Regina. We like we we're not going to sit around and let this NDP government tax us to death. And do you know how many of those companies move their head offices out of the province, Ryan? zero not a single one uh the, the most notable one was ovinta which was formerly in Canada. and that actually happened under jason kenny's watch uh not rachel notley so the idea you know yes technically companies could walk away from their leases and their oil and gas assets in alberta and purchase new ones in the united states but from a shareholder perspective that would be negligent um and, and it just doesn't actually make any sense when you look at the assets we have here in Alberta. Like the oil sands are not a well that depletes. Like she, Alicia seems to think that all oil wells are like they were in the 1950s. But, you know, the oil sands, whether it's bitumen, uh, you know, mining or it's in situ, like these are long life projects and companies that have sunk billions of dollars into building the infrastructure around them are not gonna walk away from billions of dollars to go spend more billions of dollars. Where, Venezuela, where they have heavy oil? Like it it just doesn't accord with the reality on the ground. Uh, We also, uh, by the way, you know, saw lots of jobs lost and and, uh, a decline in spending in Texas. Uh, You know, people point to Alberta under the NDP and say, well, look at all the jobs that disappeared. Look at all the spending that went down. Same thing happened in Texas. And Texas had a Republican governor, And a Republican president named Donald Trump for most of the NDP's term in office, they saw the exact same trends. And you know why? Because it's actually about the oil price. It's about the global price of oil, which Rachel Notley cannot control. Daniel Smith cannot control. Donald Trump can't even really control. And that was what drove down activity. That's what resulted in people losing jobs. Uh, And you, you you see that now the price is coming back up. Oh, look, the activity picks up again. It's almost like it's driven by the commodity price cycle and not politics
1: uh alicia and, and again like so she and i the background to this is that she and i participated on this political panel together and we got into it quite a bit and actually had a good time doing it i said you got to come on real talk we'll do the same thing we'll talk about some of the big issues heading into this Alberta election we didn't bring her on to talk about pipelines or energy policy as a matter of fact one of the magic things if we even pull back the curtain max on how how you and i plan out our segments we'll let people know We don't really plan them out. We like to see where the other person's going to go. We like to see where the conversation's going to go. She talked a lot about pipelines. She was making it a lot about energy and the energy industry and access to tidewater and all these things. It was a lot like the 2019 UCP campaign, jobs, economy, and pipelines. I'm not 100% sure that that's where all the conversation and focus is going to be four years later, the 2023 election. I mean, I think that obviously the NDP wants to make it about healthcare. What do you think is going to be the ballot box question? What do you think Albertans are going to be thinking about that one question at the
2: end of May? So that's a really good point. You're making it. And look, it's not surprising that uh, a prominent conservative is living in the past because uh, I think they quite enjoy the past, but um, there was a really good Janet Brown poll for CBC that came out just, I think a couple of days ago, Um, you know, Janet Brown, I'm sure you've had her on your show many times. She has the gold standard of polling in this province. And it showed that in 2019, you know, the run-up to the 2019 election, oil and gas was the big issue on people's minds. It was top of the charts. Now, going into this election, it's the number four or five issue. Uh, ahead of it is the economy, ahead of it is inflation, ahead of it is healthcare. Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's gone down 30 or 35 points in terms of the number of people who rank it their most important issue. So... If the UCP wants to make this about pipelines, they're going to lose the election. Uh, it's just that simple. What do I think the elect the ballot issue is going to end up being? It's going to be who do you trust. Do you trust Rachel Notley, the NDP, to not, you know, blow up the economy, as I think conservatives would like to pretend? Do you trust Danielle Smith not to blow up the health care system, as I think, you know, progressives would like to pretend? I don't think either one of those... Uh, characterizations is true, but I think that'll be the ballot question for everyone is who do you trust more with the things that you care about most? Um, And I think it'll be a fascinating uh, election uh, and a fascinating campaign around that issue. One of
1: the one of the sort of the trust factor storylines, you know, people can can evaluate Rachel Notley as a standalone. They can evaluate Danielle Smith as a standalone. And I think that this call with this so-called street preacher, Arthur Pavlovsky out of Calgary is is going to be a story that Danielle Smith's team is going to work hard to get you to forget about. And when you're talking about trust factor, I wonder how significantly this will factor in. Uh, again, to go back to the conversation with Leisha a couple of days ago, I don't know if she really believed what she was saying because she kind of walked it back a little bit. People should listen to the full interview, but, but here was our exchange on, on Archer Pavlovsky. This is the call everybody remembers, 11 minutes of the Premier's time with a guy that was just weeks out from being tried on charges that since happened, the ruling yet to come down, uh, weeks away from being tried on serious charges relating to that coots border blockade. And, and Leisha says,
3: yeah. I just don't see this as a huge issue.
1: You think <laughs> that the premier should be calling somebody a couple of weeks before their trial relating to Coots border blockade where guns were seized? You don't honestly think that's a good look for the premier?
3: No, it's not a good look. But I think that um, in light of the fact that she made promises with regard to she shouldn't have made those promises, but she made promises with regards to prosecutions based on vaccine status. Yeah. That's what she made promises on. And I think she wanted to make it at least look like she was trying to follow through on that.
1: How much of a liability, Max, is this for the premier? Do you think whether you're talking about the trust factor or even anything else remotely related to the story?
2: I think it's big and, and she keeps making it bigger, uh, which is the part that I can't really understand. I mean, you know, when she changes her story every week on her call-in radio show, and then, you know, that creates a whole nother cycle of people asking questions about why she made that call and what it was really about, doesn't help her talk about things she wants to talk about, like the budget, like the, the money they're spending, like the economy. And so there's a, there's a lot of political self-injury uh, at play here. You know, I, I know the UCP wants to make this about sort of the technicalities of, you know, did you talk to the prosecutors? Did she not talk to the prosecutors? I think the real issue is why is she talking to this guy at all? Um, you know, anyone who is in Calgary—I uh, mean, good lord—he lives near me uh, here in my my neighborhood—knows who this individual is. You know, he's he's a very sort of hateful figure. He, you know, anti-LGBTQ. He blamed the floods on on gay people. Um, you know, anti-vaccine, like just not a not a mainstream or even a remotely mainstream character. So why is the premier spending 11 minutes on the phone? genuflecting to him and and coddling him and and trying to sort of assuage his tender feelings it's such a bad look and it speaks to I think her judgment and the people that she surrounds herself with and you know to Alicia's point where she's kind of hand waving it away and I've seen other people do this the question I would put to them is if this was Rachel Notley and she spent 15 minutes on the phone with a with a pipeline protester who had tried to blow up a pipeline in Alberta how would they respond? Would they say, ah, it's not such a big deal. You know, it's just, you know, whatever, let's move on. Or would they make it the biggest deal in the history of big deals? I I think we all know what the answer to that is. So there's some just very obvious hypocrisy here, but the longer we spend talking about Archer Palowski, the less time the UCP has to spend talking about things like jobs, economy, uh, and everything else that i think is is much better for them than this. Mm.
1: Uh, let me ask you to to bring it back to my conversation with with Alicia uh, Carbella earlier this week. Uh, she she asserted that Rachel Notley didn't fight for Alberta's energy sector. I mean, she went so far as to say that there's been no other Canadian premier in history that has ever fought against their number one industry as vociferously as Rachel Notley did. That's my paraphrase, by the way. Uh, but she she invoked the examples. Of, she talked about you know different government bills, federal bills. She talked about Energy East. She talked about Northern Gateway in particular kind of caught my interest. Now, I feel like a lot of the conversation or or the opining about the Northern Gateway pipeline ignores the fact that it was the courts uh, that said no to this and that the Harper government's approval of this project was almost, dare I say, irrelevant. In other words, this wasn't something that came down to the politics. And politicians can rattle their sabers around items or issues uh, cases before the courts and there's great politicking to be done. But when it comes to the actual work that might be accomplished, uh, people might be left wanting. What, you talk about bringing the facts. Why don't we talk about the facts about why Northern gateway didn't happen?
2: Sure. Uh, I mean, it was a failure of the Harper government, like you say to, to do the consultation on it properly. The federal court throughout the, the approval and certainly, my sense back at the time, uh, and I recall, you know, Enbridge basically saying they weren't interested in in reviving the project. Uh, you know, going through that whole process again, um, it was a dead letter. Uh, and so the idea that Trudeau killed it, it, you know, he euthanized it. It was already it was already dying uh, because there were so many problems with legal problems with unceded Indigenous territory in northern BC. This is something that. I just don't think the oil and gas industry understood i think they thought that the legal landscape was similar to alberta which i mean alberta is treaty bc is not mostly not treated like it always boggled my mind the way they approached it but you know i i think and en- gateway was a dead letter um and rachel notley wisely chose to focus on the one pipeline project that could get to, uh, oil to tidewater which was tmx because tmx was already running along an existing route there were there was it was not cutting through sort of you know uh, virgin forest and all the rest of it like Gateway would have it just didn't have the same problems so I think she wisely said if I'm going to fight for something I want to fight effectively and she did that with TMX and look if you go back and look at the clippings at the time the Liberals give explicit credit to the to the NDP government in Alberta for forcing their hand on buying t- a TMX uh, after the BC NDP government ironically filibustered it uh, basically into submission uh, so. You know, the politics around this, and I got Derek Fildebrandt, of all people, on my podcast to acknowledge that it was the BC government that did it, not the federal government, and that the Alberta government was the one that kind of made that happen. So there's just a lot of swirling politics and confusion here that I think some people are very happy to take advantage of. Uh, I think that's unfortunate. You know, as to the question of her fighting, I guess guess it's about what your definition of fighting is. If your definition is throwing a temper tantrum, yelling and screaming... Uh, you know, uh, being visibly uh, fighty, then maybe she didn't fight as much as the Conservatives wanted her to. But if your definition is advocating strongly for what you want and then getting it, she has fought better than any Alberta Premier since Peter Lougheed. And I think you can draw a straight line between the way that those two Premiers uh, did their advocacy in Ottawa. You know, TMX would not have been bought and it would not be nearing completion were it not for Rachel Notley's work. That is a fact. People may not like that fact. They may find it unpleasant, but it is a fact.
1: So let me ask you this. This is a political analysis question. Why do you think that neither Prime Minister Trudeau nor former Premier Notley get credit, generally speaking, for TMX? Because you know they don't.
2: I mean, part of it is that there is a very large sort of institutional bias that, that doesn't want to give them credit and simply won't give them credit. And then part of it is that they haven't, Uh, they haven't left a paper trail uh, that makes it easy for people to pick up. You know, one of my enduring criticisms of the Liberal government in Ottawa uh, is that it is absolutely terrible at communicating. It has been terrible at communicating on the carbon tax, and it's been terrible at communicating on this issue, partly because from their perspective, there are no votes here, right? Them buying TMX wins them maybe one seat in Alberta. I don't know. I don't think it did. And it costs them a lot of votes in B.C., so they're not going to go out and broadcast the fact that they're spending now upwards of 30 billion dollars on a pipeline project that's going to move Alberta's oil to Tidewater because it's not a winning issue for them. But but they did it. Uh, and that part is the fact. And and maybe, you know, I, I as I said to Rachel on the podcast I did with her the other day, like it, it frustrates me that the Alberta NDP doesn't do a better job of making the case for their energy policies, because I think it's very, very easy to argue that they are a better steward and advocate for the oil and gas industry than the UCP has ever been. Uh, they got a pipeline done. They were effective marketers in the United States and in international markets. Didn't do dumb stuff like pick fights with Bigfoot. They didn't have a war room. They didn't have an inquiry. Like The fact case on, on who is better for the industry pretty clearly tilts towards the NDP, but the industry itself doesn't believe that. And the NDP doesn't seem to wanna to make the case themselves.
1: Uh, Max is referencing his podcast it's called Maxed Out uh, his Rachel Notley interview released uh, that's episode 11 on April 11th and you can check out uh, more on that at nationalobserver.com uh, Max two questions for you they're both huge ones and so I'm being com- I'm being completely unfair to you right now because I'm asking you just a real quick question that would require a whole bunch of time to to actually answer it but I'm going to be talking to Janetta McKenzie and Heather Exner-Pirot both contributors to uh, Alberta Views the uh, April edition uh, it's a great edition and, and-, and they get into the dialogue is Alberta oil ethical and then they dig, they dig into it from a yes and no perspective so let me ask you a massive question I'm curious on which angle you'll use as your approach is
2: Alberta oil ethical no um because oil can't be ethical uh you know I reject the premise as uh Herb Gray used to say in the House of Commons many years ago the, you know the idea that oil is ethical or not ethical. Uh, it's a commodity. Uh, what matters is the conditions in which it's produced. And, and look, our conditions in Alberta are some of the best in the world. They really are, uh, but they're not the best. That is the, that is where I get my backup. Is folks want to use ethical oil and and Ezra Levant's argument to sort of suggest that we're the best in the world, and we're not. Go look at Norway. Go look at the United Kingdom. Even go look at some parts of the United States. Like we're good, but we could be so much better. And that would be the thing that I think the industry should be focusing on, not pounding its chest, not saying we're the best. You can't criticize us. If you do, you're, you love Saudi Arabia. And I get that all the time. But saying we're good and we aspire to be the best. And here are all the ways in which we are doing that. Uh, and, and that part is still missing. Uh, and so I think the ethical oil argument is, is, number one, it's lazy. And number two, it gives them an out to do the real work that needs to be happening.
1: Great take uh, Heather extra pro for what it's worth. And we'll hear from here in about five minutes. Uh, writes She actually opens her argument. She says debating the ethics of Albert oil was perhaps an interesting intellectual exercise five years ago in 2022. It seems absurd. And then she develops her argument from there. If you want to hear what it is, you'll have to keep it locked and keep listening. Uh, before I let you go, Max, uh, you've just put this out. Uh, you put it out yesterday. Nationalobserver.com. People can read it. Why are we? all to blame for Canada's brutal housing market. We don't like to take responsibility for things like that.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm really channeling Jim Prentice here with the look in the mirror stuff, but <laughs> yeah. um, he was right. And, and I think there's a similar dynamic at play here. now I exclude, you know, students, renters, people who are not homeowners from the, the, the Royal us, right. I, I, there are certainly people who have absolutely no blame uh, when it comes to our housing market, but you know, for the vast majority of us, for the majority of us who do own our homes, we're the problem because we're the ones who don't want to see our house prices go down. We don't want to see policies put in place that would tax the equity in our homes or the, the capital gains, excuse me. We don't want people to build tall buildings near us. And so we go to community meetings and protest about uh, about townhouses. Like I, I pointed out in the, in the column, you know, there's this group in uh, a town in Ontario that, you know, they took a picture with their arms all folded saying, you know, we don't want these townhouses near our, near our homes. We are the ones who vote and express our politics in ways that interferes with the kind of supply that we need to have and this kind of demand measures that we need to see to bring housing prices down. Uh, and so, you know, if we're going to solve the housing conundrum, which is, it's not great in Alberta, but it is horrific in B.C. and Ontario and other parts of the country. Yes, we need more, you know, social housing, uh, like the NDP MP uh, Daniel Blake, he said in that very good speech that went viral. Yes, we need more market housing, like Pierre Polyev and conservatives say, but we also need to take a look at our own attitudes and how those are getting in the way of building what we need to build in this country to bring house prices down.
1: Max Fawcett is the lead columnist at Canada's National Observer and the host of Maxed Out, which is a great podcast where Max basically brings on people with whom he thinks he could not disagree more. And they hash out important (laughs) issues just like he does here on Real Talk. It's always a pleasure to see you, my man. Thanks for doing this and have a great weekend.
2: Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, you got it. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Fawcett. And again, read his work. Check out his podcast, nationalobserver.com. We're going to get to our uh, dance partners. We're going to get to the dialogue participants as featured, the contributors to Alberta Views April issue. I wanted to remind you, by the way, that uh, Real Talkers have an opportunity to subscribe to Alberta Views for 50% off the regular price, which is actually amazing. Uh, The the promo code is AVRJ. That's Alberta Views, Ryan Jesperson. AVRJ, the promo code. uh, When you're going through the subscribe process at albertaviews.ca, it takes like two seconds. Get this, it winds up being about 20 bucks for 10 issues of Alberta Views delivered to your door through the year. You gotta be kidding me. Unbelievable. It's the magazine for engaged citizens uh, with great contributors, as you're about to see in just a second. Wanted to give a shout out to our friends at Friesen Brothers this morning. You know, they've got uh, this weekend a big event going on. It's April 15th and 16th, a Ukrainian-inspired Easter celebration at all of Friesen Brothers' fresh market stores. A feast for family and friends Enjoy a traditional Ukrainian all-you-can-eat festive foods with carved gammon ham, Ukrainian sausage, Pierogies, cabbage rolls, hot crust buns, you name it. Plus, Easter bite sized cold cuts, deli meat, cheese, fruits, and of course, traditional Easter deviled eggs. All of this, all you can eat, 30 bucks per person. You can find out more information at slash Easter dinner. You know, we're so proud to be partnered with Complete Care Restoration. I tell you, they're the ones that built this remarkable studio for us and did some problem solving along the way. This, this room's 110 years old. There was a water leak they had to source out and fix. They said, "No big deal. This is what they do all the time." It's why they're chosen by more and more people that are encountering the, you know, the nightmare scenarios. You hope it never happens to you, but fire damage, flood damage, Maybe you're doing a renovation, you open up a wall and you find mold, you realize you've got asbestos. Don't try to deal with that yourself. Get in touch with the team at Complete Care Restoration at CompleteCareRestoration.ca. It was so cool last night to have a chance to meet up with the leadership team, some of the executives at Apex Automation, a proud partners here of Real Talk. And they're talking to me about their growth, the company's growth over the past couple of years. You know, they've doubled their revenue. They've tripled the size of their team. They're opening field offices across Canada and the US so that they, first of all, their team members can be closer to their families and closer to their clients. It's all part of putting... People before profits, and you get what they mean when you do just a little bit of digging around Apex Automation. If you're maybe a recent graduate of engineering, maybe you're down coming out of the University of Calgary, uh, maybe you've been in the business for a few years, or maybe you're an experienced professional engineer looking for a change of pace, check out what they're doing and how they're wired differently, so to speak, at Apex Automation. You can check out the careers link, they're hiring right now at apexautomation.ca. And before we get to our official Real Talk roundtable this morning, I want to remind you that it's proudly presented by our friends at urban timber, reclaimed wood. That's right. They're the ones that designed and built our beautiful table in studio. They'd love to do the same for you, whether that's your home, your living room, maybe it's your dining room, or what about the boardroom at your office? It could be a coffee table, an end table, maybe shelving, flooring, or wood paneling. Whatever is your dream when it comes to design, they can make it a reality. You can come check out their new location in West Edmonton, open 10 to 4 on Saturdays, or browse them online including that beautiful box car collection you won't find furniture with more history inherent than the box car collection on display right now at urbantimber.ca Well, it's a question that people have been asking for a long time. When you start talking about social license, when you talk about energy expansion, when you talk about building pipelines, when you talk about the global energy arms race and economic security for nations, uh, let alone corporations, people talk about ethical oil. But is there such a thing? This is the question. That our guests take on in the most recent issue of Alberta Views magazine. Uh, Janetta McKenzie is a senior analyst with the oil and gas program at the Pembina Institute. She works on issues relating to net zero by 2050 and decarbonizing Canada's oil and gas sector. Arguing the other perspective on this is Dr. Heather exner Perot. She's a senior fellow and the director of energy, natural resources, and environment at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Uh, to the both of you, a warm welcome and thank you so much for being here, uh, Doctor Exeter Perot. I thought it probably made sense to to begin with you because you argue right out of the gates debating the ethics of Alberta oil. Perhaps you say an interesting intellectual exercise five years ago, you say, but right now it seems absurd. How come?
0: Well, thanks for having me on the show, Ryan, and and I I want to also give a you know kudos to Alberta Views for hosting Jeanetta and myself. They call it. A dialogue people who disagree engage in respectful exchange and it was and i think we need more of that um i'm sure there are areas where janetta and i agree you know almost wholeheartedly on some of the issues uh so it's, it's good to have a respectful you know kind of looking at kind of the areas where we might disagree so i appreciated that opportunity so i think we've just come out of a decade of of cheaper energy because of the shale boom and i think it allowed us to be a bit complacent and to take cheap energy for granted and not realize how many ways cheap oil improved human well-being, improved our lives, uh, improved the ability to grow in other ways, improved human development. And now we're entering a period, and it was really pushed after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, into a period of expensive oil and expensive energy. And that is going to have very dramatic effects. So, you know, Jeanette and I didn't choose the question, is Alberta oil ethical? Uh, you know, is, is water ethical? Is copper ethical? Are... You know, are cell phones ethical? You know, maybe, maybe it is the wrong question, but I absolutely believe that yes, it would be unethical for us, you know, to stop producing oil. Um, and, and, you know, before I turn it over, just, just look at what happened, you know, last week with OPEC plus cutting oil production. And what was the International Energy Agency's response? What was the White House's response? This is irresponsible. This is going to drive inflationary pressures. This is coming at a time when supply is tightening. This will hurt the most vulnerable people in the world. Uh, because it'll make their cost of living go up. It'll push some people into energy poverty. So I think part of the problem is that in Alberta, we tend to be navel-gazing, uh, and we tend to be very parochial and think about is Alberta oil good for us or not? And we need to start looking at it that we're the world's fourth largest producer. Oil is critical to everything our, we do. We can't have 8 billion people without oil. Um, and, and when you cut it, where you make that supply more expensive to $100 a barrel, $150 a barrel, real people... Uh, really hurts.
1: Thanks for that, uh, Janetta McKenzie uh, from the Pemina Institute. So, so you are assigned the no perspective on this, but. Also, uh, to give our audience members that haven't had a chance yet to read both of these arguments, I want to give you some credit out of the gates. You don't come out guns blazing. You don't bring out a big sledgehammer and tell everybody that's worked or is working in oil and gas that they should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, Despite the fact that you argue no, you write, quote, the industry and those who work in it have much to be proud of, including a record of technical innovation, strong safety standards, and good jobs for generations of Albertans. But then the rub, you say, but does all this make the product ethical? Can you take us into it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me, uh, Ryan. And and thanks, Heather, for, for engaging in this debate with me. Ultimately, I do think that the question is Alberta's oil ethical is probably the wrong one to be asking in 2023. A better one for Albertans might be. What is the role for our high carbon oil in a world that's focused on addressing climate change? And asking this question and answering it now matters a lot to Albertans in the future. We're currently experiencing an oil boom that's not accompanied by an uptick in jobs. We know from global energy scenarios, from from oil majors like BP, Equinor, and also the International Energy Agency, that global oil demand is likely to peak even if no further climate action is taken, but on pathways where countries meet their announced targets and we accelerate along that global climate action pathway, oil demand peaks and declines even more rapidly. And this shrinking uh, long-term oil demand, coupled with governments that are aiming to reduce emissions across their supply chains, is driving competition for lower carbon fuels, which presents a problem for Alberta oil. On average, Canadian oil remains the second most emissions intensive in the world. And unlike other sectors in this country, greenhouse gas emissions from the oil and gas sector have grown. They're up 20% since 2005, and they make up a larger share of Canada's emissions than any other sector. This is driven in large part by increased production, offset only by modest progress in reducing the emissions intensity per barrel produced. And the ability of this sector to decarbonize in line with the rest of the economy and quickly is critical to meeting Canada's 2030 and 2050 climate goals. And if Canadian producers don't take urgent steps to cut their emissions, they also might soon be struggling to compete globally as our trading partners move ahead on on, uh, climate action. And I'll just pick up on, on what Heather mentioned about OPEC last week. I think that this only throws into sharper relief the need to diversify our economy and decarbonize our oil and gas sector. The answer to climate change, to energy security, to energy affordability, is to diversify our energy sources and move away from oil and gas.
1: That's a supercharged conversation though, isn't it? I mean, I mean to, probably the most supercharged phrase right now is just transition in this context. And I know that both of you have seen that and some of the, the politicking around it. Do you think, and, and of course, I'll ask the question to both of you to be fair here, Heather, you first. Do you think that the both of you might find some points to agree, want, agree on when, when we talk about or evaluate the factors that will lead to the continued success or the potential phasing out or damage done to Canada's energy industry? Might both of you agree on the factors that might contribute to that?
0: So I would say we both agree that we need to transition, you know, that that greenhouse gases cause climate change and climate change is not a good thing. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, I'm a huge fan of nuclear. I think nuclear is going to be the solution. In hundred years we will be using nuclear and producing hydrogen from nuclear. And that'll be the future. Of course, we'll still use hydrocarbons for materials. But what I where we don't agree is I think there's very optimistic uh, perceptions of where oil demand is heading. And I want to remind people, yes, in Canada, I think we can reduce our consumption, and we should. In Europe, in the United States, yes, reduce our greenhouse gas intensity, cut down on oil use. We seem to forget that there's another 7 billion people in the world, you know, who are are generally in lower income countries, that if they want to move into the middle class, will have to consume, will be consuming more energy. That the population of Asia is going to grow at at the same, you know, it will cover the entire population of the EU, the United States, and Canada, and Japan by 2050. Another billion Asians will be on this planet. And hopefully they move into the middle class. And when people move into the middle class, they consume more energy. So yes, BP said in 2019, IEA has their net zero scenarios. But on the other hand, OPEC and Exxon and RISTAT and others say actually, it'll increase for a while. And it's not that I want oil demand to increase. I think if, if there was cheaper, better, more reliable, more accessible energy solutions, we would just use them You know, that wouldn't be a question. If they were cheaper, we would just use them. But I think that our population is going to grow to nine billion people. Those nine billion people will be using more energy. Uh, And there's there are some things that cannot replace oil right now that we are decades away from replacing.
1: Janetta, how would you respond to that? You do write in your piece in Alberta views. You do write about shrinking oil demand.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's important to note that these scenarios put out are not crystal balls. um, But even oil majors like BP and Equinor are putting out what they think a reasonable trajectory for global oil demand is based on existing uh, climate pledges, announced targets and on net zero. And these scenarios are continuously revised usually every year. But the trend in the last few years is that they're revising long term oil demand downwards, not upwards. And I think, I'd also like to pick up on on something Heather said, I very much agree that the world needs abundant energy resources now and in the future to support a good quality of life both at home and globally. However, 20 years ago, that energy mostly came from fossil fuels because cost-effective substitutions weren't available. But that's not the case today, and it won't be the case in the future. The cost of renewable energy has been falling for a decade. In some cases, wind and solar are cheaper than fossil fuels, depending on the geography. The cost of solar power in particular has fallen by more than 85% since 2010. And in some places, solar power is the cheapest source of power ever. Mm. And the price tag of an electric vehicle is shrinking as well. And road transport is really critical to our outlooks on global oil demand. Bloomberg... Bloomberg projects that EVs could reach cost parity with gasoline-fueled cars by 2026. And on a a total cost of ownership basis, these cars are already cheaper. Meanwhile, the, the most recent energy crisis that we found ourselves in has really shown into sharp relief the results of fossil fuel dependence. Oil markets are historically volatile. And these events in Ukraine and events with OPEC recently have again reminded us that fossil fuel energy access and affordability can be very easily put at risk by invasions, embargoes, or other geopolitical developments. So the fact that renewable energies are cheaper now, and they will continue to get cheaper, I think kind of gets at this idea that the transition is still decades away. The transition's happening now, and it will continue to accelerate. But there's a real opportunity for Alberta and Albertans to take advantage of the economic opportunities in the new energy
1: economy. Let, let me ask you both what that looks like. He- Heather, what does that look like for Alberta to take advantage in a new energy economy? And and do you think Alberta can still be? I mean, I, I, I've i appreciated that you, you watch how language evolves and even how promotion evolves. You even look at when you drive down to the city of Calgary from Edmonton and you see the big billboard welcoming you there for a long time. It said it said, feel the energy and they started evolving the words they were using to describe Canada's quote energy capital. What does the future look like over the next two or five or 10 years do you think
0: okay first let me respond to a few things that janetta said sure um 80 percent of our primary energy needs come from fossil fuels and the biggest the biggest proportion of that is oil and so so we have added you know trillions of dollars into renewables and it has displaced maybe two percent of primary energy demand solar and wind are not are not our very small proportion of our primary energy demands in the world today and that just I hope they grow, I'm supportive of them growing, but it'll take so long. The other thing is that, I mean, I have to say it, solar and wind are not based on power. And they'll say, oh, we know, we know. Then why don't you mention that in the discussion? So when you look at China, who has a lot of the supply chain on solar, you know, that they're able to build it quickly. And, uh, you know, they are building it at an incredible rate. They're deploying solar at an incredible rate But they're still building coal and they're still increasing their oil consumption because because, you know, when you add solar and wind, you have to add something on the other, you know, on the other side of the ledger, the baseload power. So we had the, the biggest use, the biggest burning of coal last year in 2022 than we've ever had in human history. And so despite all the money that we put into solar and wind, we are still burning more coal than ever. And that is the first thing we should start taking down, you know, with LNG, first of all, with solar and wind to produce electricity, but electricity isn't even the bulk of the power that we use. And so solar and wind are going to provide electricity and that's great. And there's other sources. We need to look at hydro and nuclear too, but they don't do industrial heat and they don't do transportation. They do it very poorly. So then we talk about the EVs. We are really on the cusp already. I I want people to know that the capital expenditures in mining globally peaked in 2012. When the IEA says we need to, you know, produce six times more metals to meet our, our energy uh, you know, needs, the, to do the energy transition. OEC just put a report yesterday on the same thing. We aren't even at one times what we were at 2012. We are orders of magnitude below a lot of these minerals of what we need to produce. And guess what? Mining has never been more expensive because diesel is more expensive. And so companies, mining companies are not pouring six times more money into new mines. Um, So it it is, you can tell when a mine is not going to be online for 10 or 15 years. So I can see 10 or 15 years into the future of what is going to be available for critical minerals. And everyone can tell right now, everyone is saying it, we are not going to have the critical minerals we need for the transition. And I would love for us to mine more. Canada would really benefit from that. Um, But we aren't mining more in Canada, globally, anywhere. Uh, We're mining pretty much at the same pace as we have been, you know, for the last decade. And it's not enough on the on the other question. I'll be quick since I took up so much time. I, I hope that we stop burning oil and gas. You know, I hope that we move away from internal combustion engines, but we will never stop using hydrocarbons because they are an incredibly useful molecule, incredibly diverse, incredibly accessible, incredibly cheap. Uh, So we're, you know, we're already producing more net zero petrochemicals, we're already producing blue hydrogen, net zero hydrogen. And there's so much opportunity for us to use that. And the last thing I'll say is not oil is created equal, you can't displace the heavy oil that we have in the oil sands with light, sweet crude uh, elsewhere, they have different purposes, different uses. And so the oil sands will not be the last because we're always going to need heavy oil for some things.
1: Janetta, I appreciate that, Heather. Uh, What would you like most to respond to there? There's a lot to choose from.
0: Yeah, um, I'm going to
4: do it all. Uh, First, I'll start with the the EV question, um, which is, I agree, road transport makes up almost half of crude oil demand globally. It's a huge indicator of where global oil demand is going. As we switch over to EVs, the world will need less oil. There are already indications that the pace of that particular transition is accelerating based on EV sales trends from the last few years and the fact that costs are going down. We also know that our our close allies and trading partners like the United States are moving very quickly on this. Just uh, Just this week, the US Environmental Protection Agency released a new regulation targeting transport emissions which could see two thirds of new car sales being electric by 2032. This has implications for the global transport industry and for Alberta's oil and gas sector. But I absolutely agree with Heather that we need a much, much bigger ramp up and to unlock private investment into lower carbon and clean energy. This has been identified as a gap by the International Energy Agency that we need to uh, almost quadruple the amount of clean energy and lower carbon investment uh, that the world is making by 2030 annually. So I absolutely agree. There's opportunities for lower carbon energy in Alberta. There's also opportunities to scale up. The installation of renewable energy. This transition is not flipping a switch. It's not going to happen overnight. It is going to take time. However, the fact that the costs of renewable energy are going down and are going down drastically, the fact that we are seeing these trends in road transport begin to accelerate These all indicate that we are headed for a very different energy marketplace in 2050 and even 2030. And there is a real opportunity for Alberta to pursue a net zero aligned industrial decarbonization strategy that allows for training workers in new jobs and preparing for where the new really important parts of the energy economy will be. But I absolutely agree that we need to unlock much greater uh, private investment in Alberta and in Canada.
1: Uh, We're talking, if you're just tuning in, live streaming on the Mixler audio app uh, presented by California Closets. That was Janetta McKenzie, uh, also joined by Heather Exner-Perot from the Pembina Institute and the McDonald Laurier Institute, respectively. Uh, Let me ask you this to bring the question or the focus back to is Alberta oil ethical? Now, whether or not this is a productive conversation, Max Fawcett asserting earlier, he said it's a commodity. He says a commodity can't be inherently ethical or unethical. Uh, Let me ask you about optics. Uh, obviously that that toxic tailings pond leak that happened for about 9 months impacting communities in Athabasca for Chippewan at the Curl facility, Imperial Oils facility there. Still cleanup efforts underway. It was obviously a story that made news not just nationally but internationally as well. How much damage, Heather, does that do to the reputation of Canadian oil? And and if I can be a little bit crass and just cut to the point, does it actually matter? From a bottom line standpoint, it obviously matters environmentally, but does it matter to the business of oil?
0: It doesn't. And and this is, you know, I'm glad we're getting into this element of the conversation because because OPEC share is going to be growing when people say, is it is a commodity, is it ethical or not ethical? Let me tell you that Russia and Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq will use it in unethical ways. They will use that leverage of controlling energy security for the world in ways that do not align with our values and with our interests. And and how we ignore that aspect of the conversation, I don't know. We just came out of a period where shale oil grew dramatically. And so that, you know, after the 2008 peak, you know, $147 a barrel, shale, shale oil grew, American production grew. They went from the world's largest importer to the world's largest producer, and that changed the balance of power. And that, you know, and that created a a kind of a decade of cheap energy, low interest rates, all those things. Now we're moving out of that. That's why OPEC plus could make that move last week is because they see that they have the leverage that shale oil can't ramp up like that anymore, that they're starting to get bigger part of the market share. And the only country, the only OECD country, the only Western country that can significantly expand its oil production now is Canada. And so, you know, so does it, are, are our allies going to choose a lower carbon barrel or, you know, will they choose Russian over a Canadian barrel? I think absolutely not. First of all, they don't even have that option. Japan's still buying Russian oil above above the cap, above the sanctions cap rates. Because they have no choice. They have to buy Russian oil. Do they want, are they not waiting until TMX is up so they can buy more Canadian oil? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the oil sands uh, had a poll, but it was an Ipsos poll, global poll. What country would you most rather buy your oil from? Canada was the number one country above Norway and United States. So no one can tell me that our allies, that Europe, that the United States, that Asia don't want to buy a Canadian oil barrel that they will think about, you know, the greenhouse gas intensity when their alternatives are Russia.
1: Janetta, what do you think?
0: Yeah,
4: absolutely. I'll talk about the tailings first, which is, I think this is a huge issue. And in light of the sector's long-term outlook, we do have to consider a company's serious liability problems. This is an issue with a ballooning price tag, which Albertans will be on the hook for if industry can't pay. And as long as the sector grows, future revenues are in theory meant to pay for the cleanup of these projects and the cleanup of this tailings waste. But when large structural change is on the horizon, like a global decline in demand for oil, relying on those future revenues becomes really, really precarious. And then I'll just, I'll, I'll switch again to the energy security angle. Again, the fact that there is so much dependence on oil and gas in the global economy means that uh, moving to renewables and diversifying our energy supply is a way to solve that. Of course, this doesn't happen with a the, with the snap of a finger and overnight. There will be short-term bumps in the road that we have to navigate on our way to net zero by 2050. But global climate action is gaining momentum. Our allies are planning to get off of oil as well. They can't tomorrow, but in 5, 10, 20 years, absolutely. And the Alberta oil and gas sector needs to be aware of how that will impact their own operations and their own need to decarbonize their own operations. Maybe tomorrow Japan can't decide to buy a barrel of oil based on its emissions intensity. But as it grow, but as it uh, works to meet its own climate goals, maybe it will. I think it will. And I think that as well, the, the fact that there's not enough renewable uh, power uh, penetration thus far does not mean that there won't be in the future. You know we're not talking about 30 years from now. We're talking about the next decade where there is projected to be a massive increase of global climate action, renewable energy capacity, of uh, placing a premium on emissions reductions from our trading partners. We already see this in the European Union, which has recently passed a carbon border adjustment mechanism, places tariffs on emissions intensive goods. This doesn't yet include petroleum products, but it might in the future. This is how the European Union emissions trading scheme developed, it started with a few products and added more and more. So we need to be aware of that as well. Yes, we are selling oil to our allies today, but in the future, our allies are going to get off of oil and gas as well
1: uh really appreciate both of your time on this i want to encourage people to check out your your writing it's great so here's how it goes so alberta views uh these two take an opportunity they make their argument then they read the other's argument and then they respond it's really well done you can check it out at albertaviews.ca before we go my biggest nightmare would be a guest saying oh gosh i wish i would have had a chance to say this so to ensure we don't leave anything untouched, let's call it a closing argument, so to speak, or, or maybe a charge you give us through this weekend to something to ruminate on or think about. Uh, Janetta, why don't you go first?
4: Sure. I'll, I'll just reiterate a little bit of what I've said. Ultimately, this transition is happening now. It's not happening in the future. And it is accelerating. Global climate action is gaining momentum. Renewable energies are getting cheaper every day. Uh, EV sales indicate that the transport is that um, EVs will be purchased at a higher rate in the future. And there's huge potential for Alberta to take advantage of this new energy economy. But we need to do a couple of things. We need to commit to decarbonizing our existing oil and gas operations in order to get this sector in line with the rest of our economy in terms of emissions reductions. And this will help us remain cost and carbon competitive in a shrinking global marketplace that has an increasingly high standard for emissions reductions as our trading partners pursue their own goals. And second, to pursue a net zero aligned industrial strategy in Alberta and in Canada that allows Albertans and Canadians to take advantage of the vast economic opportunity in the net zero transition and the net zero economy. Heather,
1: last word to you.
0: So we are so blessed to be in Alberta, where we have such great energy security. There isn't a more energy secure country than Canada, but that has made us complacent, uh, and we think you know everything is hunky-dory around the world, and it's not. And energy is going to be getting more expensive. All kinds of energy costs are not going to go down anymore. We had that great you know few years of cheap energy, low interest rates. That time is over, and part of it is over because oil is not going to be cheap anymore. So everything is going to cost more. Inflation is going to go up. Um, there's nowhere you'd rather be than Alberta. We are one of the few places in the world that will actually benefit, but for the world as a whole, it's going to be very bleak, um, you know, in, you know, enjoy, enjoy, you know, those hundred dollar, you know, plane tickets to Vancouver because they won't last.
1: There you go. That's something that'll get everybody's attention. <laughs> uh, that's Dr. Heather Exeter-Perot. She's a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, uh, joined by Janetta McKenzie, senior analyst at the Pembina Institute. You can read both of their great work in this month's issue of Alberta Views at albertaviews.ca. You can subscribe with the promo code AVRJ to knock 50% off a one-year subscription. That's 10 issues. Thank you to you both and have a great weekend. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Bye. Really appreciate it. This conversation, of course, presented our roundtable every week by our friends at Urban Timber, but there's a whole roster of Real Talk sponsors that we want to put on your radar. If you ever want to thank us for doing this show, why not support our sponsors? That means a lot to all of us, and that includes the family-owned business that is Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. Now, as the name would suggest, they've got raw dog food nailed down they're the experts we've gone to them for nutritional advice for lifestyle advice for our dogs you want to address things like joint pain you want your dog's coat to look as best as it possibly can maybe you've got some appetite issues but they've also got high quality protein for cats Yeah, you can check them out. The blog link is where you can learn a little bit more, and then you can order online at granddog.ca. The promo code REALTALK knocks 10% off your first-time order delivered to your door. That's what we get. It's the best service. Edmonton, Calgary, Central Alberta. It's Grand Dog Essentials, quality raw food. All this talk about solar, renewables. Did it have you thinking like it did me about Kubi Renewable Energy? They've been with us through the start of this Hawk show project and all the way through and we're growing our team's Side by side. Yeah, that's right. Kubi Energy is hiring right now. They're heading into their busiest season. That means it's all hands on deck. Are you or somebody you know passionate about advancing Canada's energy industry while making a positive impact on the environment? They would love to hear from you. Kuby's looking for apprentices, uh, journeypersons as well in both Edmonton and Calgary. You can check out kubienergy.ca slash careers to learn about open positions Johnny, for people watching this on YouTube, you're showing them photos. This is like in, in Canada. This looks like a
5: really cool job. Doing installing. Have, yeah. Can you
1: imagine me up on roofs in mountain communities installing solar to save the planet?
5: Yeah, it looks incredible. Uh, it goes
1: above and beyond the regular call of duty, doesn't it? Okay, so you sign up for Kubi. You've got solar panels up on your roof. What next? Well, parkpower.ca wants you to know about their solar club. Yeah, that's right. In the summer months, they're not going to BS you. In, in December, your solar panels, you'll be using all the juice they can give you. But in a June, July, August, maybe a little extra energy, you sell that back to the grid via Park Power. They're going to pay you more than any other of the big guys will. You can learn more about it, read about it online at parkpower.ca. Don't forget, the promo code REALTALK23 is a bundling promo code. So if you take your electricity, natural gas, and internet business over to Park Power, they're going to knock $150 off your first bill. That's $50 for each of them with the promo code REALTALK23 at parkpower.ca So Johnny, we had our meeting yesterday with Mike and his team at Eden Landscaping. Mm-hmm. They showed us the mock-ups for the backyard overhaul they're doing for us, this total redesign. Beautiful. Oh, we're so excited. 3D renderings, that's all part of the process. So when I talk to you about what it's like to hire Eden Landscaping, I'm doing it With personal experience we're in the process right now and don't worry real talkers i'm going to show you the before and after picks in the whole nine yards it's amazing working with mike and his team because you can tell how much they care about giving people a space that they can enjoy work and grow in to provide a space that's flexible it's as flexible as your life and that it can evolve as your needs evolve and i'm going to be honest with you we're on a budget And so we told Mike the budget, and he's working the design around that budget. He understands that different people come at it from different angles. It's been a joy to work with Eden Landscaping, and you can do the same by making contact with him, a free consultation at landscapeedmonton.ca. Before we go any further, before we get to trash talk, I have to tell you about what's going on at Dairy Queen Baseline. This is, uh, uh, I talked to Michael Lieber yesterday. He's the owner. Mm -hmm. This is a family-owned business. You know, they are number one in the country for soft serve sales. What? More people buy (laughs) soft serve ice cream at the Dairy Queen Baseline in Sherwood Park than any other Dairy Queen in Canada. Incredible. Johnny, I think it might be in part because of this new churro-dipped cone that they've got. If you go check them out, you can find these at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, all five of them, Palisades, DeMaio, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. A churro-dipped cone topped with cinnamon sugar. Yeah, that's right, all coated on their world-famous soft serve. I know what we're doing this weekend. We're going to a Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park for a churro-dipped cone. You make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you. You holding up okay pal?
5: I'm doing okay. I uh I'm pretty excited for the end of the show here because I know I just know trash talk is going to be <laughs> lit up today. So
1: uh, you deserve a quick shout out here, Johnny. There's been some troubleshooting involved in the shows yeah. this week, And you're doing a hell of a job. Circumstances, life puts them in front of us outside of our control, but it is yeah. how we respond to them that that exemplifies our character. But I so love, that's a big I, 10 points for you this week.
5: Buddy. I love our listeners. You know, obviously I can see a ton of them just moved over to Mixler today. We're going to have the whole episode up on uh, YouTube after, but it's crazy. It's a crazy time we're living in. And I was telling you yesterday, like you come from TV where like a signal goes up to from a truck to a satellite and it goes anywhere in the world. It just works. Whereas the internet it's so volatile these days. It can I mean be. every day since we've been in here things have been stealth. Yeah. And then we didn't change anything. We do updates on Friday just for this reason because yeah. we have the weekend to sort it out but just we don't know what's happening. So hopefully our provider, they're coming by today to fix things out. Monday, everything will be good again. We'll be rocking and rolling. It's just crazy. You, you, you update one thing, 10 others don't work, right? People and can then... feel
1: your pain, man. <laughs> people can feel your pain. But people thanks, have been
5: there. Thanks so much to our listeners because they're giving me props in the chat. Oh, that's great. Like I'm that happy that to so.
1: hear it. And that's a great reminder as well. You can always catch Real Talk. So, I mean, we're talking about EVs and technology yeah. and how it's changing. More and more people are streaming audio in their vehicles. They're mm-hmm. streaming audio in their commute, on the bus, on the bus on the train, what have you. Mm-hmm. used to? You know, have to have a Walkman that could pick up like an AM or an FM <laughs> signal. You go to Mixler, you download the app, and you just search for Real Talk Ryan Jesperson. You can stream our audio wherever you're at live. It's really great. Mm-hmm. And anytime the YouTube feed gets a little wonky, go check out Mixler. There's a whole other group of Real Talkers hanging out there every single morning. <laughs> and that's presented by our friends at California Closet. Now, every Friday, as Johnny alluded to, this Let's is a, this. a tradition. It's a chance to get some... I mean, this trash talk. I will say this. We had about five emails pulled for this, and, and then I talked to Alicia Corbella, and then we just had to overhaul the entire trash talk because our inboxes were flooded we love the passion we love the engagement this is presented every friday by our friends at local environmental services check them out online localenvironmental.ca. a chance for you to blow off a little steam a tradition we call trash talk this one from Marilyn who says, I was listening to your segment, Jesperson, with Charles Adler on Tuesday. The, whether or not a person deserves care, you know, perceived by the general population with a coffee clash that they did not take care of their own health. However, that may be designed. This is the whole thing. More personal accountability for heart attack victims. Maryland says the thing that's often overlooked is how this group of people with all these attitudes will actually operationalize their beliefs. Like, what's their plan? Like, if you truly believe in survival of the fittest, what's your definition of fittest? Who's setting the criteria for deciding whose life is the most valuable? You know, these political parties, the coffee clatch, have also amused that people deserve cancer or that maybe anybody closing in on 80 years of age has lived to their life expectancy. I mean, who else might be on the chopping block? Marilyn says, there's no doubt in my mind many groups of people, young and old, currently on this chopping block. She says, I don't know about you, but I definitely don't believe that some of these commentators have the knowledge, the right, or the moral decency to be deciding the value of life. Everybody's life has value. Universal health care is for everyone. That's from Maryland. What about this one from Donna, who says, So Jesperson, <laughs> according to Chelsea Petrovic, mayor of Claire's home, and Danielle Smith, the premier of Alberta, being accountable for your health, staying out of hospital and staying healthy doesn't include getting vaccinated. I guess if this recommendation came from a naturopath, it might hold more validity. Donna said, I heard a comedian recently say the anti-vaxxers are doing their darndest to bring back polio. She said, I thought that make, might make real talkers laugh. That from Donna. I think I should get five points for sticking a <laughs> trash talk in the plant behind I me. Can't what do you wait think? wait until people see, if, see this. You scored if a three-pointer. I, three can, I did score th- from way downtown. Right in the fern. This one from Thomas. Thomas says, Jespo, first off, loyal listener. I got a great deal of respect for your show and most of your guests, but... He says, I could barely keep my cliff bar down. <laughs> when Leisha Corbell. we know what he's eating for breakfast. When Leisha <laughs> Corbella started spewing her anybody but Rachel Notley vitriol. A vitriol light on facts and full of that condescending phrase, the people don't realize. You know the translation, here's my view, and woke people don't agree with me. At our house, says Thomas, we're proud centrist. Some days, a dash to the left. Other days, a smidge right. He says, I always thought that so-called journalists took pride in approaching issues with balance and research. Even if they're writing an opinion piece, facts might be nice. He says, the bias was blatant. Just imagine if an NDP premier was conducting calls with a union executive facing criminal charges. The right would have a proper shit fit. He then says, again, I love the show. From Tom with an H. And this one from Allison, whose subject line simply reads, The Finger. She says, Jesperson, Wednesday's episode was incredibly difficult to listen to. I was baffled. I was muttering. I wanted to pull my hair out. The UCP demonstrated incompetence, failed to fund healthcare or create or enforce sufficient public health policies through the pandemic. They failed us when it was their job to not overwhelm our healthcare system. This was evident during the initial waves of Delta, and it still enrages me. Healthcare workers were underfunded, under-resourced, overworked, and amassed daily exposure to traumatic events. That healthcare worker flipping off the premier is a hero, and it doesn't even come close to the sentiment that many healthcare providers have the long-lasting psychological impacts they're most likely to suffer from. This is absolutely not the same, says Allison, as some entitled asshole choosing not to get the vaccine and throwing a tantrum because they need it to be altruistic. The so-called flu trucks clan... Had an anti democratic, fascist, racist protest base openly identifying in its ranks. She says the stunt they pulled at the border is terrifying. A shout out, though, says Allison, to Alicia Corbella for being one of the most painful interviews I've had the displeasure of listening to for a long time. Allison's telling us how she really feels. She says she reminded me to register to vote this morning. I will take great pleasure because I have decided to dedicate my NDP vote to canceling out her UCP vote clinging onto a party that's not recognizable anymore, that overestimates the value of a resource causing climate catastrophe. Her takes on the NDP are based on fear. And I believe that the difference in these parties is social programming and funding. I didn't believe Jason Kenney on health policy, and I don't believe Danielle Smith's iteration of the same thing. We should believe what she said. Smith, that is on the podcast. That is the spirit of the take back Alberta faction. They appear to be the worst of wild rose, but condensed, but condensed, and more terrifying she then in true real talker fashion johnny signs off warmly allison you can send us your trash talk to talk at ryan whether you agree or disagree with the guests that you've heard or seen on the show we thank you for your engagement you are the most engaged talk audience in the country You can send us a tweet. You can check out our Instagram and TikToks by following Real Talk RJ. And we'll see you right back here on Monday. Make it a great weekend, everybody. And thanks for tuning in to Real Talk.
0: Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General Manager Katie Cook Chivers. Account Coordinator Lawrence Derlego. Human Resources Lena Shefford. Website Design Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory. The traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Metis settlements and the Metis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.